five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. All right, welcome everyone. Episode 96 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things? Uh, I'm a little tired, Mike. It was, uh, we were at a great fundraising hockey tournament in Moncton, New Brunswick for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. It was, was unbelievably well run. But the uh, airline industry in Toronto right now is not the best. So let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the airport from hell, as they say. <laughs> Jeremy Roenick has oh. jumped on that bandwagon along with Ryan Whitney. So now, and well, we, or our guest today, we might as well get right to him because I'm sure he may have a story too. Mm. He was taken 18th overall in the 1982 draft by the New Jersey Devils. Spent his entire 20-year career, which is unheard of, with them. Thus made, named Mr. Devil. Win three Stanley Cups. Career Devils leader in games played in penalty minutes. Now works on team broadcast. I also see him on NHL Network coming in Florida. We don't get that up here, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> please welcome Ken Danico. Ken, first up, thanks for joining us today. And how you doing? I'm doing great, fellas. And I've learned a long time ago that uh, I don't complain anymore because nobody listens. So airlines, <laughs> whatever it may be. But uh, I got home at night. I went to uh, Porter on the smaller airport. So. It all worked out, but as Rick said, more importantly, uh, I had a great event and a weekend that uh, I don't do many of. I, I know a lot of the guys in the Toronto area, I'm sure Rick as well, do a lot more because I'm pretty busy with the Devils stuff and traveling with the team and doing the broadcast. But I tell you, I'm going to try to do more because you know what? Every time you go and you start uh, uh, talking with the guys that you played against and battled against there's so many stories and, and fun stuff and, and i really enjoyed myself and uh, i i look no further Ale- alexander Dig came up to me and uh, he came for the last day and he goes you know he showed me a scar on his wrist and he says i, I just want you to know i don't know if you're going to remember this but uh you, you took me down with a slash and yeah he had a step on me he could fly i went flying into the goal post and i had to have surgery and i'm going I'm going, oh, man, I feel horrible. I apologize, Alexander, but I don't remember it, to tell you the truth. (laughs) (laughs) And we did it. Back then, as Ricky knows, we did anything to survive, anything to stop uh, the speedier forward. Certainly, that was part of my game, but I I did feel bad about it. He says, don't worry about it. He says, I I had a little time off. But (laughs) but I still got paid. But but just stories like that. And and, and obviously, like I said, the... we were playing against Kenny's team the one game, and all of a sudden I get a, the end of a stick blade in my groin. I'm going, what the hell was that? And then he comes out after, he goes, I'm sorry. He said, I just didn't think. He said, I had to get my stick in. <laughs> I, said, I get it. I get it. I <laughs> The competition in, in, in that to, to compete never leaves you. It doesn't matter how no. slow it's moving out there. Uh, and every time... You're trying to stop someone just the old, like you said, Ricky, instincts come out and I go, oh, God, I hope I didn't get him too hard because I kind of reached out. I think jabbed you in the groin going there. But uh, 
you know, all considering, we, we really had a blast and just just hanging out with guys like Rick and, and Wendell Clark and, and Ronald, you mentioned, and Ally Afraidy is such a fun guy, Darian Hatcher, and uh, there, there was just so many good people there and, and a well-run event. And, yeah, like Rick said, I was buckled. I have not played. We played four games in two days, and I haven't skated all that much. And I, I forgot again how great hockey, playing the game of hockey, is for your conditioning and for every muscle from your neck all the way down to your feet because I was sore uh, in every area. <laughs> Right, by the way, uh, can the joysticks arrive on time? Uh, because uh, Squid told me that Ronix and Barnaby's were broken, so they weren't yeah. exactly in the best moves. Uh, ironically, mine arrived. They didn't make it home yet. So all my luggage and everything, so if that's the least of my worries, I'm okay right now, but I have to give them the airlines a call, see if they have my sticks. They didn't make it back to New Jersey. And, and I want that one stick because I felt I was handling the puck. I... I scored in the shootout, and I go, I need that stick for future alumni games. So I'm hoping they find it and bring it, give it back to me. But if they don't, <laughs> what, what are you going to do? But, uh, yeah. again, uh, we, we had quite the blast. And like I said, I, I hope to go again next year and, and meet up with the same guys because, you know, I, I always had such respect for guys like Ricky that came before me, and, yes, I played against them. And, and then guys I played with or against or at the, in the same era – uh, you know what? We battle, we compete, we fought, we did whatever we had to do the way the game was played in our time. But uh, you just, after 10, 15 years go by or 20 years go by, you, you have such a respect for the other players and, and guys you compete against. And I, you start reminiscing, oh, man, that guy was tough. Man, that guy was fast. Man, <laughs> that guy shoot. You know, that, that stuff's just such great memories for sure. <laughs> you know, well, let's, let, let's go back to where you know, I was going to say, like, like, even back when we played, I, I always thought there was a great deal of respect amongst the players when we played against one another. Yeah. You know, uh, as, as far as, you know, off the ice, there was always that kind of moment where, where everybody had that for, for all the players in the game. And there was uh, very few really bad cheap shots or anything like that. I mean, the game, we played hard, we played physical, but uh, we played honest. No, I agree with that. I mean, yeah, there was a lot more fisticuffs and fighting. We know that. And yeah. That was part of the, the nature of the game back then. It's evolved, and I've gone with the times, the speed, the skill, although we had some pretty damn skilled players as well. Don't get me wrong in our era, but that was just part of it. So many people ask me, compare your era, today's game, and I go, it's like comparing apples and oranges, or could you play in this era? You couldn't play because these guys are more mobile than it's skating. It's, we trained differently. Our time was our time. I yeah. loved it. There was more intimidation. That was part of it. That was part of my game as well. But um, and I love the game today and the skill. And obviously, we know so much more about head injuries and concussions and, and things like that. So the game, the National Hockey League, does everything to protect players at all costs. And I'm in agreement with that. But I wouldn't change a minute uh, of the 20 years I played with the Devils in our time, Rick and Mike. Yeah. That's what it was then. I loved it. Was I? a little nervous sometimes going into the game or scared because I might have to drop the mix with a guy that might be a little tough for me. Absolutely. I was, but that's part of it. And you do what you got to do or to stop guys like Rick, 50 goal scores, you know, those, those battles, those, uh, that competitive part of it never leaves your, your inner soul. Because I remember, you know, I became where I had to fight a lot earlier in my career. 
And then after that, developed my game a little bit, thank God, and got to play against top lines as a shutdown defenseman. And, and just the intrigue of, of saying, you know, going through your mind before games and, and uh, visualizing, well, how am I going to stop? What's Rick Five do when he comes down the wing? What does Mark Messier do or Wayne Gretzky or Mary Lemieux? You know, we, so we still had those kinds of mental uh, battles with ourselves. But, yeah, and we had a lot of physical battles as well. But, but it was great. It was just a different era, different time. Everything evolves in life. The game of hockey as well. And it's, it's at a, a great level right now. Love watching what's going on right now, too, in the Stanley Cup Finals. You know, yeah, I love the, the, the level of, uh, uh, that these guys are at, uh, the, the amount of uh, things that they can do with a puck at high speeds and everything. But I, I do got to say that they, they work on that stuff all summer long. They have skill coaches and everything. And I, but I always I always laugh when I see someone try that Michigan goal because I figure if he, he tried that in 1981 or 82 <laughs> yeah, against oh a guy like Billy Smith, can you imagine what he would have done? <laughs> yeah, and again, Rick, absolutely, just just different times. The creativity of some of these young players nowadays, I think it's great for the game. Though it's unbelievable what these kids can do. Exactly what you're talking yeah. about. I mean, it's on a string. But I always say. The greats of our uh, our era, whether it's the Gretzky's or the Mary Lemieux's, I can't imagine with the technology and training and, and everything we know today as everything evolves, what those guys could actually do with the puck or the Bobby Orr's or whatever. Bobby Orr was skating like some of the great defensemen today, the Makars yeah. and Neymars, who I played with, who was the greatest skater I've ever seen, with skates that were about a pound and a half heavier. I can't imagine what a guy like Bobby Orr today. So I always say, is the game better today? Probably the bottom tier, skill-wise and skating ability, yeah. is the way yeah. we're talking is they train more. But the the high-end guys, well, I'd say in our era, and I'll stick up for these guys, that they'd be the greats of any era, because I don't know if anybody's as good as Wayne Gretzky or, <laughs> or a Mary Lemieux to, in, in today's game. And McDavid is right there. I get it. And he just does it a little differently. But we had some special ones, too. Well, that's funny you said that, Ken, because we've had that conversation on this show many, many times about the difference in the game. And one of the things that comes up a lot, and we've brought it up, and a lot of players concur with us, is that the bottom six and that six, seven, eight defensemen is where the biggest changes come from who've raised yeah. their game to the level that are these guys skate as good as the first line guys, shoot almost as good as the first line guys. They just maybe don't have that little extra sense of gift that the top guy has, but they're right there. And the level of compete and skill ability is minuscule. And Mike, that's, that's what we talked about earlier here is, is the evolution of the game. And Ricky saying they got skills coaches and, and, and training for different things to, to be so creative that uh, stuff that wasn't even thought of back uh, when we played in. Yes, the bottom tier was more the physicality, maybe in our time. Uh, <laughs> you needed some some big guys that could uh, protect teammates and and do the other stuff the way the game was played back in our time. But that's just the way it was. And and like I said, I know now. I watch defensemen, and I say this all the time. I always say I, when Larry Robinson came in the mid, early '90s with to the New Jersey Devils and Jacques Lemaire. I learned more in the first week about positioning and stick work and, and, and just the all-around defensive game and the little nuances from Larry in one week than I 
I, I was taught in the first 10 years of my career. And it really prolonged my career, to be honest with you. And now when I see today's defenseman, the only thing I say, I still say they go down too much because exactly what you're talking about, Mike, the fourth line guys can toe drag you now. And when you yeah. go down too early and commit too early, you're done. Back in my day, usually the third and fourth line, if it's a two-on-one, I'm going down. A lot of times he can't make that saucer pass or have the patience to toe drag me, cut to the middle, or I'm sliding out of the play. Nowadays, when I see a guy go down too early, I'm going, oh, no, that's trouble. If you're doing it against McDavid, it's big trouble in, in the likes. But if you're doing it against third and fourth liners now, it's still trouble because these guys are that skilled as well. And that's kind of the difference at what you kind of alluded to at the start of this conversation, Mike. I, I agree with that. Well, what do we want to do is can we want to go back and how you got to this level and right back to the beginning, if we can take your memory right back to memory lane. You're born in Windsor, grew up in Edmonton. Why don't you take us through the early part leading up? And you played for a few teams in your junior career. Just talk about your junior and right up into your draft year. Oh, man, you got a minute. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, like, like any Canadian kid, uh, growing up uh, since seven years old, I told my mother ten times a day, no exaggeration, I was going to play in the National Hockey League. And my mother would pacify me and go, yeah, yeah, Kenny, I know. And I don't think she really believed it because she'd go to my father every once in a while and say, you know, is he dreaming too big? I mean, there's 10 Ken Danicals in every corner in Edmonton, Alberta, as in Toronto, as in Saskatchewan, as in Manitoba. But, but you know, hockey being the passion and, and a religion, uh, if you must, in Canada, where so many kids played uh, and a lot of us had those dreams. But I... Gosh, I I go back and I don't remember a lot, but that's one thing I remember. I mean, I ate, slept, drank hockey. To my mother had to come and get my father and my brother or sisters to take me off the ice in twenty below weather <laughs> at the rink to come home for dinner. I, I wanted to play so bad, and, and my dream was to play right from a young age. Not just play now and have, I'm playing in the National Hockey League. I'm going to do what those guys are doing. Saturday night when we all got around the TV and watched Hockey Night in Canada and the Leafs and the Canadians. And, uh, you know, so I grew up a Leaf fan. So knew, I, I, knew, I got to play against, obviously, Ricky, but but knew, knew of him. And the Earl Thompson, Lanny McDonald, uh, Daryl Sittler line. I mean, I love those guys. I always go, and I, I gotta, I, I've got to get there one day. And when I lined up against Daryl Sittler one day, uh, he was a Philadelphia Flyer at the tail end of his career, and I had to pinch myself because you know, I was – Going, I, I can't believe it. I was watching this guy at eight years old, and I said, I'm going to play one day in the National Hockey League. But to actually get there, to believe it, my mother used to think, yeah, I, I was saying it a little too much. But I haven't said that, just the passion, the work ethic. And I wasn't the most talented. I, I was talented as a kid, as we all are in our communities, and one of the better players, I guess. But as you get older, competition gets stiffer. And then I had a big decision to make. At 15 years old, I played Bantams in Edmonton. I was one of the better players as a 14-year-old in the city of Edmonton. And you get picked on a list, no drafts, whatever, on a WHL team. So they a protected list, and they protected me at 14 years old. It was the Great Falls Americans. Only lasted a year and a half in the Western uh, Hockey League at the time. But that was the team that had my rights. And at 14, as soon as I finished Bantam and I was turning 15, they said, Ken, we think you're ready to skip, skip midgets and would you be willing to go to our affiliate 
and it was the Yorkton Terriers in Saskatchewan and the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League. And that was a big step because these guys were big, strong. I was a pretty big guy for 15 and pretty strong, but uh, not mentally as mature. There was a lot, I was playing against a lot of 17, 18, 19-year-olds, 19-year-olds. And, and I was one of two 15-year-olds in the league at the time. But just to go there, and I want to tell you this quick story. This is talking about the sacrifice parents make. I mean, and it was a little different then. So I go to my father, a man, a few words. He was from Germany and came over to Canada 22 and just got to love the game. Didn't know much about hockey when he came and, and just supported me and guided me and it just drove me to all my practices. But I go, Dad, uh, I got a chance to move 500 miles away to New York and Saskatchewan to play junior. And uh, I know mom's not going to be crazy about it. We went to my mom and she said, and she's passed since then. And she, we said, uh, said, mom, I, I want to go to Yorkton 500 miles away. And she goes over my dead body. You're leaving home at 15 years old with, with a, you know, kids a lot older than you. And so my dad takes me to, to the side the next day and says, son, is this what you want to do? I mean, I said, dad, this is my dream. Still gives me goosebumps. I guess my, I remember talking to him. This is my dream. You know, if I'm going to take that next step and this is the best for my development and they tell me it's the best for my development, uh, the WHL team, then, then I really want to do it. He goes, the coach from Yorkton was Jerry Bullets was his name. And I still remember him well. And he's passed along as well. And he says, I'll, I'll pick you up on a Sunday at a gas station outside Edmonton to drive me to Yorkton. And my dad says, we're not going to tell your mother. I'm going to take you to the gas station. Let's I'll deal with her for the next couple of weeks because we just don't want the argument. If this is what you want, go do it. And got picked up and played that whole year in the Yorkton Skatchin Junior Hockey League. We're a young team. It was a nasty league, not that far fetched from slap shot. There was, yes, some talented guys like Chris Chelios and a few others. Dave Tippett, I think, was playing for the Prince Albert Raiders, just to name a few, but it was a tough, tough league. And if I could survive this league, I felt it was a step in the right direction. Played all 60 games that year. And I don't know how I survived. A lot of guys left home, homesick. But this is what I wanted. And I, I persevered. I worked. I believed in myself. And the following year, went to the Western Hockey League. Great Falls folded. Went to Spokane Flyers. Played for them a year and a half as a 16 and 17-year-old. They folded. So I had an adventure, guys. <laughs> and then in a dispersal after December, right before Christmas, the Seattle Breakers picked me up. So I was all over the map. But this was part of it. This is part of perseverance. This is part of going through the grind. And I went to Seattle, no complaints. And sure enough, that was my draft year and um, played there. And New Jersey Devils, uh, they didn't have a team name, came from Colorado. The Rockies were brought by the late, great John McMullen, who I loved, our owner at the time, brought him to New Jersey. And, and uh, you know, they had one scout. Rick, you'll know this guy, Burt Marshall. Do you remember Burt yeah. Marshall? That's oh, yeah. That was Kings Mike for sure. So this is the difference of today when they know you eat, sleep, what you eat, sleep, drink, can check everything online and social media and videos and, well, back then, as Rick knows, and Mike, you know as well, they trusted one scout. Bert Marshall, uh, it still gives me goosebumps I, I, and it gets me fired up because the draft was in New Jersey 2013, I want to say, at the Prudential Center. I had not seen Bert Marshall for 30 years. He's there scouting for Carolina 2013, I believe it was. 
I go up to him and say, Bert, you know, I heard a little story. You know, you hear things. I said, I heard you really went to bat for me and and were begging the devils to pick me because they didn't really want to pick me from what I heard. They didn't know enough about me. They were saying I wasn't rated to go in the first round. And they kind of really trusted their scouts. And Bert says, Kenny, sit down. You don't know half the story. He goes, I drove around in a beat-up Winnebago in Western Canada for three weeks near the end of your season and into the playoffs specifically to watch you because they had eight and 18th pick. And I wasn't going eight. But and he was amongst a few other players he said he was watching, but he said he's specifically watching you because I saw your character and, and your heart. And he goes, I went back to New Jersey after watching you at the end in the playoffs. He says, I'm telling you, at 18, you're taking Ken Danico. He's going to play 15 years for you. Upper management said, Bert, we're not taking Ken Danico. And Bert says, I'm telling you. I'm begging you at 18, take Danico. He's not rated there. We're not taking him. And they go back to Burt draft day, and they go, Burt, you willing to put your job on the line? This is true story, serious Jeez. stuff. Burt Marshall goes, I'm putting my job on the line. You take Ken Danico. There's a few other defensemen around that, that pick. He says, you take him. I'm telling you, he's playing for you for a long time. Sure enough, uh, the Devils draft me 18th. And that's when I really thanked him because I really hadn't, you know, you, you appreciate guys that believe in you. It's about somebody believing in you. I had belief in myself and I had work ethic, but he, he, you know, I probably wouldn't went to the third round. I'm being honest with you. If Burt Marshall didn't tell them to take me 18 and Burt gave me a hug, he says, Kenny, are you kidding me? I'm still drafting because of that. I'm still drafting and working in the national because of that thing. You freaking played 20 years and over 1,400 games, including playoffs. So we gave each other a help. But I, I was just really, really appreciative. And I know I might have uh, rambled on there, but, but it's no. a story that no, means great story. My heart. That was the difference. Those scouts put, and Ricky, you know that, right? Yeah. Your, those guys put their jobs on the line for certain picks along the way. And, and Bert was no different, but because he believed in me. And uh, I can't thank him enough. <laughs> oh. Well, you got to win Stanley Cups because of that, and I didn't in Toronto because our scouts used to scout from the bar. They used to watch, used to watch it on TV. <laughs> I don't know what the hell you're going to see on TV if you're drafting somebody, but, but you know what? The one thing I do like what you said and I it, about young players in Canada, and that's your dream, right, to play in the National Hockey League. And I remember get, when I was on the plane going to Sherbrooke, in, P in Charlottetown PEI and my parents are waving to me and I'm waving to them and I'm saying to myself, I will never be back here to live full time ever again. That was what I said to myself because I said, I'm going to make the National Hockey League and I will never live here full time again. And it came true. And it worked out pretty good for you, Rick. I mean, oh, yeah. that was a lot of our, a lot of our, guy's mentality i mean i i just think we bled it it was in our soul that and and, and you're not going to make it because a small percentage make it unless because everybody's talented everybody's skilled you have to have a little something different something extra to get to the elite level and and thank god we had that passion and love for the game certainly but uh, when the devils drafted me another good story so it's Montreal's in draft. Montreal, the drafts in '82. The draft in '82 is in Montreal. I'm in Edmonton. It's two hours earlier. I the phone rings and they did it quickly. And 
agents only flew first rounds to the draft. So you don't think you think I was going to the draft. My agent, Bill Waters at the time, was not flying me to the draft because he didn't believe I was going to the first round either because money was a big issue and they were only sure shots to go in the first round. So I'm, I'm at home waiting for a call, hoping to get a call, but I'm sleeping. So it's about 8.30 in the morning, half hour into the draft, 40 minutes, whatever it may have been. My mother, I'm, I, I went out for a few to take the edge off with my brother. I have an older brother. We went out for a few beers and you know, I, I just said, Pete, I'm praying I get drafted. Like, he goes, you're getting drafted. Don't worry. Just a matter of where. And I said, I might be the third or fourth round or whatever. And he goes, you're going higher than that. My brother believed in me too. And and so I get a call about, you know, 8.30, 8.40. My mother picks up the phone and I'm still sleeping. She runs upstairs, wakes me up. I'm kind of groggy. She goes, Kenny, come down, take this call. I go, mom, it's a buddy playing a prank. I one peek at the clock and I said it's like 30 minutes into the draft 40 minutes she goes when she says Kenneth I know she's serious she says Kenneth get downstairs <laughs> downstairs I'm half asleep still and they pick up the phone I go oh they go Ken congratulations this is Burt Mar or not Burt Marshall uh, Marshall Johnson we've uh, just selected you 18th overall I dropped the phone Tears, brothers and sisters, and my hooting and hollering. I'm, I go to my mother. You go, you're not going to believe this. I just, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. I go, I just went 18th overall. So I didn't think I was going anywhere near there. My mother, who, nice little petite Catholic lady who never swore in her life, goes, you've got to be bleeping me. Because <laughs> she was the one that heard every day for 10, 10 times a day, I'm going to make nice. She, she couldn't believe it. And I, none of us could. And then... She asked me to pick up the phone, and I've told this story many times. She goes, I didn't ask what team it was. I didn't know, really. I was, I was just, it was all a blur. So I didn't care. It could have been Siberia. I was getting drafted in the National I pick up the phone. I go, oh, yeah, who is this? It's New Jersey, and, and that's when he said Marshall Johnson. And I put my hand over the phone, and I said, Ma, where's New Jersey? I had no idea where New Jersey was, and that's a true story. All Devils fans know that story well, and, I would have ran the 2,000 miles to New Jersey. It didn't matter if I knew where it was to get my chance, to get my opportunity uh, to fulfill a dream. And But, yeah, all good stuff. But I did not know. I knew that there's a big city out there in New York. But I And they just came into the league and didn't have a set in New Jersey because there was no team name yet. It wasn't the Devils. They were still voting on it in, in the new Star Ledger, the new Newark, New Jersey paper. Fans were deciding what the team name was going to be. So they didn't have a team name in my draft. But – it didn't matter. Uh, like I said, I was going to New Jersey as quick as possible. Give me a chance, man. That's all I, all I cared about. Did I expect to be here 40 years later, still with the organization, play my entire career there? Absolutely not. But I'm blessed. The, they've, they've just been terrific to me. And, and the organization has been so loyal. And I'm a lucky guy. But during your time there, I mean, there was some times where, like, I remember – Coaches getting fired with five games left in the regular season, and then you guys go oh. and win the cup. And, th <laughs> you know, and, and, and when those things happen, I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell do you fire your coach with five or six games left, and then you go on and win the Stanley Cup? I don't get that. So fill <laughs> us in on those changes and, and what they meant and how that helped you win the cup, actually. Well, look, we had some lean years, as you, as you know, Rick. It was usually uh... – Teams coming in in New Jersey in for the first four or five years, and it was you might as well mail them the two points because we were winning 17 games a year. And then the genius of our owner, John McMullen, 
decides to bring in this kind of no-name named Lou Lamorello from Providence College. <laughs> he was a AD there, a athletic director and coached in baseball and hockey and everything else. And we didn't know much about him, but we were starting to draft pretty well. We got Brendan Shanahan. You all know about Shanahan, president of the Leafs, and I think in 87, and we already had Johnny McClain and Kirk Muller mm-hmm. and Joe Sorella, Pat Verbeek, and myself. And so we were starting, Craig Willanen came in, and we were starting to build a pretty good nucleus, but team still wasn't winning much. In 86, 87, we, I think we won maybe 10 more games than the previous three years. So we saw something happening, and, and I just wanted to be part of the solution and be part of it like us, our young group. Now, McMullen brings in Lou Lamarillo. That was a gutsy, risky call to bring in a guy that nobody knew a lot about. Even the National Hockey League didn't know much about him. But, man, when he came in, you saw that presence and that it factor. I always say that it factor for certain people that are leaders. You don't teach it. You just know when he walks into a room, you better listen. And he had that right away uh, out of the gate. And so uh, Lou Lamarillo was really a, the cat, the biggest reason and, and the guy that uh, molded the direction of the team and gave us belief and and what it was going to take to win. And ironically and not ironically, we made the class for the first time in our history. And the first year he came in 87, 88, went on a 7-0-1 run uh, at the end of the year, won an overtime in Chicago last game of the season just to get in the playoffs. And then we knocked off the number one seed Islanders. We knocked off the number seed, two seed Washington and won seven games against the Boston Bruins and lost. Or we went on to the Stanley Cup Finals. First time ever making the playoffs. So uh, the Lou Lamorello factor was that special. He made us, he added pieces. He added role players. He added toughness that we just didn't have. Because I used to always joke when we drove down the, before Lou Lamorello came down the turnpike to Philadelphia, you could hear a pin drop. We just wanted to survive and get out of there alive. It wasn't about winning or losing. I mean, if we get lucky, great. But we just didn't want to get killed. And that's true. Let's you know. I may exaggerate a little bit, true story. When Lou Lamorello came and he added some beef and he added Dave Maley and Jim Corn and Troy Crowder, a young frothing Troy Crowder. I remember that first bus ride like it was yesterday when when we had that team and we were standing hooting and hollering. We were fired up to get into Philadelphia. Let's go, boys. And you just, you felt it. I go, and I'm sitting there being there from day one going, the corner's turning. The tide's turning yeah. for sure. We're not afraid of the Philadelphia Flyers anymore. And that was a big part of it. And like I said, the great run in 88. But Lou was the, the real catalyst to, to, to teaching us what it was going to take. And then, Ricky, getting to your point of changing coaches. and the, Well, his genius part, it was McMullen's genius to bring in Lou Lamorello. Uh, obviously, he knew uh, his fortitude. And then Lou Lamorello in the early 90s, he saw the team finally was ready. They were turning the corner. And he traded a lot of great players because you got to mold your team. So the Mullers and Verbeeks and uh, Mullers, Verbeeks at the time, and Sorellas were traded. Uh, but you got to trade good players to get good players. And he molded the team to his liking. And then in the early 90s, he thought we were ready to make that next step. And then he brings in Jacques Lemaire and Larry Robson, guys that don't have enough fingers on their hands to put the Stanley Cup ring. <laughs> Whether it's his players or in management or coaching, again, we didn't know it as players, but we're going. When I reflect after my career, genius, genius by Lou. He's going. Now Lou's a pretty sharp guy, but he goes. Now I got to bring in guys that 
know what it takes to win championships because it ain't easy to win in this league. As we all know, you got to get a break. You got to have things go your way. But these guys, if we couldn't listen to Jacques Lemaire and Larry Robinson, there was nobody that we were going to listen to. And they came in and a couple of years, the tough loss to the uh, the Rangers in 94, kind of our, our uh, uh, stepping stone to trying to win it all. Uh, losing in the Eastern Conference Finals in 94 and double overtime, all part of our process, winning the Cup in 95. But that's all Lou, Jacques, Larry, yes, putting the, the right pieces, right players on the ice, but just that mentality of understanding every player matters. Your fourth-line guy playing six minutes a night matters to go four grueling rounds because he's going to get you a big goal. He's going to be that guy. And a lot of times, I, you know, everybody say, well, of course, role players matter, but it, it wasn't true. It was too much emphasis on the top guys. Yeah, you need your stars to star, but Lemaire and Robinson, they were on star-studded teams, but they understood the Rick Chartres and the Pierre Bouchards of the Montreal Canadiens days matter because they're going to be the difference on a play or a big hit or whatever it may be or an injury to making your team help your team win a Stanley Cup. That's what Lemaire and Larry taught us along the way when we won that cup. And then it was the bar was raised, Stanley Cup or bust. Doesn't mean it's going to materialize. Got our next opportunity in 2000. Even we had stacked teams up to 2000, but didn't go our way in the playoffs the next four years. 2000 to getting to Ricky's point. We had Robbie Fatorik as head coach. We were first place at the time. There was eight games to go. We went on a three-game losing streak. That's how, and that was unacceptable in our team. That's the bar that was was where the bar was set. These teams today, and that's why I say the 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 hating to lose part has to be as important as loving to win. And we hated to lose. And Lou Lamorello hated to lose. And we had eight games left in the year, and Lou didn't see us going all the way to the Stanley Cup because it wasn't about making the playoffs. We were already there. It wasn't about winning around. So then what does he do? He reverts back to the old Larry Robinson, a guy that knows how to win Stanley Cups. He comes in, sure enough, four grueling rounds. Everybody loved Larry character. And this is nothing against Robert Vitark, but Loop, you know, seemed to have his pulse on uh, on the button all the time that, no, we, we need Larry. We're, we're starting to – we're starting to go like this a little bit. We're getting a little uh, uninterested. And Larry brought that level of play and intensity that we needed again to be a Stanley Cup champion. And then we won it again. But, yeah, doesn't happen often, Ricky and Mike, where eight games to go, you're in first place and you fire a coach. But that's where Lou had set the standard, the bar. It was this high. It was up top. Winner bust. Winner bust. And you I was grateful to be an organization. That's where we were at by my last eight years of my career. No, it we weren't satisfied. You lose in the first round, it's a terrible season for us. You lose in the second round, it's a terrible year for us. And uh, to go from those lean years to get to that level, uh, I was pretty fortunate to be on team. And I knew my role, and I was a role player. But, man, just to be around those guys, teammates, and, and Lou Lamorello and Larry and Jock, yeah, we had different coaches. Pat Burns, great coach, won with him in my last year. But three different coaches, head coaches, winning three cups, went four times my last eight years. Couldn't ask for anything more. But I put it all on the leadership and the guys they brought in. I mean, we were a very self-efficient team. We held each other accountable, knew what it took. But it was all because of the likes of the Jacques Lemaire's, the Larry Robinsons, the Pat Burns, the, the, the Lou Lamorellos that uh, – guided that and the players they brought in because 
Uh, I remember Scott Stevens. He was our captain and not a man of many words, believe it or not, as pro as he was on the ice. We had other more talkative guys. I was one of those guys in the room. If we lost two games in a row, Scott Stevens would make you pay attention to practice because he'd run you into the boards. Not to hurt you, but it, that's that was his way to lead, to show. And guys would get, you know, get pissed at him, and he goes, we lost two in a row, unacceptable. That was the way he led. And, and that's how we had a lot of those core guys, core group of guys that, you know, just kept the, the level of, of um, expectations high. Well, Ken, I want to talk about a couple of the guys that came in at that time, a couple of the pieces. And I know in the dressing room, you and Scribbit know this better than the outsiders like us watching because you're in the room and you know where the leadership and the strength of that comes from with players maybe don't get all the press. But a couple of guys, and I don't want to ignore Scott Niedemeyer here because of the significance of player that he was when he came to you guys. But two of the missing pieces that stepped in, I think, immediately and made impact. You just touched on one of them, Scott Stevens and Marta Berdura. Those two, you've been there from the beginning. You went through the lean years. You see these two come in, and you you know the whole shenanigans with Shanahan and Stevens and all that stuff going on. Worked out pretty well for both of them. (laughs) Worked out very well for both of them. So all that aside, you sitting back in the room, what did you notice about these guys coming in in particular? That Did you see what greatness there was possibly from these guys? Well, well I mentioned in the late 80s where we started to turn that corner. Uh, but we weren't quite there yet to be a contender. And then that, uh, you know, Scott Stevens, we get that menacing leader type player on the back end. Scott didn't really want to come at the time because he was really content and happy in St. Louis. And that was Lou Lamarillo convincing him and a genius by Lou to say, well, if you're going to mess with Shanahan, whatever transpired back then with St. Louis from a contract standpoint, they were offering us a couple other really good players uh, as far as um, uh, when that all went down, as far as uh, replacing Shanahan, because they, you know, I guess didn't apply by play by the rules or accordingly, whatever, when they were trying to, or they circumvented uh free agency and try to get Shanahan ahead of time, whatever it may have been. So Lou goes, no, we want Scott Stevens. And it went to an arbitrator and somehow, some way he got Scott Stevens. So I really, and Shanny was a great player. We know he went on to a Hall of Fame career and cups and everything else. But uh, so he replaced him. So now you got that big stud, number one D. And then uh, was it Marty Bro or was it Nieder? Nieder was before Broden. Then you, do you, you need that, that, guy that can skate the puck out of trouble. And, and Scott Needham out of his day, maybe my favorite player of all time. Loved the kid. Just effortless. The game was effortless. The change <laughs> tempo of a game when the puck was on his stick because he could just control it and, and, and skate it out of harm's way anytime he wanted. <clears throat> and and we drafted him third overall. And then... Ken, don't you just uh, hate those guys that skate so effortlessly like I, you know? I, <laughs> floats, we were digging in. And, and I'll tell you a good story about that in practice his rookie year. But And then Marty came. And the, he had a different feel. You, you, you always say you need a, a stud of a defenseman. We ended up getting two and, and two completely different kinds because Scott Niedemeyer, the, the all-world skater, and, and the ferocious Scott Stevens. So we're set there. And then we get a goaltender that you go, you could see the first year, and especially that series against or, or the 94 when we went one game from a cup final. You go, now we got that franchise goaltender. So now now the pieces are in place, uh, and we talk about defense winning championships and goaltending. 
the pieces are in place but, uh, to start winning and start being a contender. Uh, but, you know, Marty was just that guy that you, you could see as a goaltender. That everybody says goalies are quirky. He really wasn't. He, he was a guy that had uh, oozed confidence. And when your goaltender is oozing confidence, and yes, his great puck handling ability, eased our job as defenseman, obviously. But when he's oozing confidence in the net, you're not afraid to make a mistake as much. So you make a mistake, you know you got a guy behind you that's going to bail you out. And that makes you play the game with a little more confidence. And and you felt that at a young age of Marty, two years in, you can say, this guy just loves the game. He's He believes in himself. And he was cocky in a good way. And you want your goal, young goaltender, franchise goaltender to be like that. And like I mentioned, told the story about Scott, how his leadership. But Niedemeyer, you know, the, the interesting story with him, and him and I are very close. And, and we were like Oscar and Felix, and we roomed together when he was a young kid. You know, I, I was the wild, uh, rambunctious guy, and he was the, the young kid that didn't say a whole lot, uh, led a real straight life. And I always said when I grew up, he was 11 years younger than me. I said, when I grow up, I want to be like Scott Niedemeyer. <laughs> and I was being serious, but, but he just – he wanted to go, 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 be offensive. And and, and Jacques Lemaire and him butted heads a lot. People don't know this uh, that much, but he had asked for a trade, I think, his third year. He he was getting a little flustered. And Jacques kept telling him, Scott, in his French accent, I need you to be on the ice in every situation. Scott was getting frustrated. He just wanted to go, go, go. And, and it finally clicked for Nieder, and he, he finally didn't worry about being traded. And, and he says, if you want to win, Scotty, uh, Lemaire said, you got to be an all-around defenseman. Sure enough, that third year, it started to click. Now he's killing penalties. Now he's out when we're leading three to two. Now he's always on the power, but we know that. And then we have a defenseman meeting uh, his fourth year, and Larry, and Larry or Jacques in there, and Jacques in that real strong French accent goes, every defenseman, unless you're 110% sure, you cannot pinch. Neither you can go wherever you want now. I told you I release the I take the shackles off. He said, wherever you want, because you're the only guy that can get back. You know, so and that was it. And, and Nieder talks about it to this day. He sacrificed probably three or four hundred points in his career, but he got four Stanley Cups, one in Anaheim right. as well. And he yeah. says to this day, he says, Thank God I I, I listened and I didn't know more because he would have been that guy that would have had all these points and maybe not won the championship. But now he was relied on in every situation, playing 25 to 28 minutes a night. And him and I still laugh about it. And I said, Needs, yeah, they. it's not easy for a young player to see that. Now, there's defensemen, and I won't mention names, that have 1,200 points. They're Hall of Famers. But if you're asking, you can pick a few defensemen um, that played a long time, and you're going, who are you going to take, Scott Niedemeyer or X? And you, without question, you're saying, Scott Niedemeyer all day, twice on Sunday – because he knows what it takes. He's a winner. He knows he's a 200-foot player, you know, and it's taking nothing away from the greats that had over a 1,000 points. Neither had seven-something. But would he trade any of those Stanley Cups for the 500 more points? No. That's what we talk about. Yes, you got to score in this game, but it's learning to play the game as well. And in tight situations, come playoff time, the more things change, the more they stay the same, even in today's game. And those guys – that's those guys learn that at a young age and from the greats like Jacques and Larry that don't worry, you'll get all the accolades you need when you're 
hoisting the Stanley Cup and you have all those rings on your fingers. <laughs> well, I want to go back to Lou for a minute because I know when he came to Toronto, like we have a golf tournament in September called the Lease and Legends and MLSE puts it on. It's, it's very, very big. Lou steps out of the car and I'm standing in front of the, the clubhouse. He says, I want to, I want to have a meeting with you. And I'm like, what do you want to have a meeting with? Anyway. So I, I go down to meet Lou and, and I got to tell you, I, I was intimidated. I mean, Lou's not that big a guy, but he's no. sitting behind the desk and I'm on the other side and I'm thinking, does he have a gun under there attached to the bottom, to the bottom of the desk? <laughs> like, I mean, he was, in, he was in, he was intimidating. <laughs> no, it's, it's Ricky, exactly what I said. So we're going, who the hell is this little guy? When he came in the room, we're going, he had that it factor. He was so, he was all business and intimidating. We're going, all right, we better listen to this guy because it looked like he was going to, you know, rip your head off if you didn't. <laughs> and you're right, he's not that big, but that's leadership. That's presence. <laughs> well, there's a couple guys who want to talk about, who want to get back to Lou because there's a couple Lou stories. And uh, um, one of the legends who showed up in defense for you guys, Vasilev Fedosov, star standout internationally, Canada Cup standout in 87, joined you guys. What did you learn from him if you learned anything watching him play when he joined you guys? Well, first off, when they brought Fatisov, we knew he was one of the great defensemen in the world. And, you know, for Luda, somehow get him out of Russia and really be the first. And Lou was going over to Russia at the time when it was communist, obviously. And, you know, I don't know the whole story. I don't bore you with that. But you guys, everybody's right up on it, seeing the Red Army documentaries and everything. But having said that, again, you know, Lou thinking outside the box. We, we got to get better. Let's go see if he'd be interested in coming over. And he drafted him late, late rounds in Kazatonov. He didn't come to a few two, few years later. His great defense partner. But at the time, he was bringing Fatisov and Sergei Steryakov over. And uh, I was nervous because that's two more defensemen coming over. So <laughs> to tell you the truth, I wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> uh, and a lot, along with a lot of defensemen, you know. Yes, and I'm sure. Work a few times to Lou because I wore my emotion on my sleeve and said, Lou, shut, and Lou would tell me to shut up and worry about your job. You'll be fine. You know, do what you do. But, uh, you know, you, you're worried. But but all kidding aside, after that, you know, just these guys were training like we were training. They were years, leaps and bounds ahead. You watch our off-ice training and some of those documentaries ahead of us and nobody knew how good they were. And obviously we knew in 72 as well and the Summit Series were or how good the Russians were, but uh, watching Fatisov and how good he was. I, I just thought he was going to make our team better. We were excited. But just just his intelligence, smarts on the ice, and obviously that was a completely different defenseman, but you can take so much and learn so much from Slav. And I became close with him and, and always would ask him, would, would pick his brain uh, just for the little things that he would do. And and, and there's, th- you know, positioning and, and patience with the puck and, I was never going to be able to do it, but if I could learn just a, this much from from a guy as poised and patient as Fatisov, then it was going to improve my game. But but he helped us helped us get better, and certainly it was just real intuitive of Luda to go out and continually trying to get our our team better. And boy, he went through a lot to get the Russians and get Fatisov. 
Well, it wasn't until I heard this one guy, and I, Scrin and I have talked about him, but we've got to try and get him on the show one day. Scotty Gomez, when I heard him on Spitting Chickens, I didn't realize what a character this guy oh, is. Like, <laughs> he is absolutely, I couldn't, I, I told Biz and that when we had him on and Whitney, I think the best character they've ever had on that show on all their 300, almost 400 episodes is him. Yeah. He just doesn't stop. And I know he came in, you guys, and he lit it all up, but. I would like you to give us a couple stories about him with your experiences dealing with him. And secondly, Lou once made him apparently go to a Bruce Springsteen concert to observe how hard a guy actually works for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was going to ask you, Ken, did he ever do anything like that to you? This is Lou, of course. Uh, if you ever get Gomer on, he'll tell you more Ken Gattacle st stories as well. There's, he is one of my best friends. He's younger than me, yes, but... <laughs> I, I, I love Gomer because you needed that combination of youth exuberance, the five, six-year guys when we were in the Cups, and then the guys like me and Stevens and the McKays we had that already been around 10, 11, 12, 13 years. So we had that nice balance, and Lou recognized that. But I was especially happy when Gomer came to the team because it took some of the heat off of me because Lou had me in the office. I usually led the, led the team and. Uh, office visits with Luke because my extracurricular activity and Scotty took some of that pressure off because now he was going to the office a lot more and it made Luke forget about me for a little bit and we joke about that but I loved it because Scotty was kind of his whipping boy like like I might have been at times but uh, you know what what can you say about Gomer his first three years he wins two Stanley Cups and wins the Calder Trophy game's pretty easy right I mean what a situation for him to step in and he was a terrific playmaker uh, and just a great offensive player, great offensive instincts, crazy as uh, uh, a three-headed owl or whatever you want to call it. He, and you love that. I loved his passion and his the craziness. But, yeah, him and Lou would battle because Scotty liked to cut corners every once in a while because he was so gifted and talented. Lou wanted to continually work on that work ethic, as you mentioned, <laughs> Mike. So we could go on and on about Gomer, but I'll tell you, one thing I love about him, even to this day, Scott Gomez, the second he came in, he respected his peers. He respected his veterans. He, he was a guy that just looked up to you and always gave you that respect uh, like no other rookie I've seen. Uh, you know, coming up to you and what can I do for you? And, and Miss E, you know, when he was 18 coming to camp, he called me Mr. Danico. You know what I mean? I'm going, yeah. you can call me Dano, Gomer. Don't worry about it. But that's how respectful he was. And he meant it because he comes he was, across like that. He comes across definitely yeah. like that. Well, I, you know, I couldn't say enough because I always respected the guys that came before me and, and appreciated when I was that older veteran that guys like Scotty Gomez and some others, you know, just showed you the respect and, and understood uh, the time, the effort and the work ethic that you put in before they came. Well, then yeah, Claude Lemieux used to keep a finger on him. Remember Claude Lemieux used to keep a finger on Gomez and keep him terrified of him. Yeah, as long as he was putting the puck in the net and setting up goals, it was great. <laughs> That's what he told him. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is he, he, when you say that, because I, I had a couple of players that used to call me Mr. Vibe, and I'm like, like call me Squid. I, I mean, you know... <laughs> I mean, I might be I might be seven or eight years older than you, but I'm 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 not that much older. And uh, but you know what? I do like the fact back when we played, when those kids came in, they had the utmost respect for the veteran players, and they showed it. And uh, there weren't that many that came in that were cocky and arrogant. And 
and acted like they didn't have respect for the veterans. And I, I loved it. I, th I thought that was great. No, I, I agree with you, Ricky. And I, I think it's important because they learn from the veterans. And Goldman's yeah. always said it many times. He says he says he was the luckiest uh, rookie and, and young player coming in the league because he had guys that really led the way and showed them what it was going to take to be a pro every day and, and what you have to do to uh, have longevity and what you have to do to have success. And, and he had a lot of core guys, veteran guys in the Devils that, that really could show him the way. And he talks mm -hmm. about that certainly a lot. But also I, I talk about, on the other hand, with, with young players, I used to tell young players to come in. I tell them today, gosh, as far removed from the game or playing the game I am, say, it's have respect for your veterans, but make sure you go out and get noticed right away. Don't be playing, you know, uh, cautious and passive. Whatever you do, do best. Do it now. Don't mm -hmm. wait two, three, four, five years. You got to play with some confidence and a little cockiness. Big difference from arrogance. I was going to ask. We talked about all the guys, and maybe this isn't fair to you, but one of the names that has not come up is Patrick Eliash, and he's a name that players just when his name does come up, oh. especially ex Devils, they just glow about this guy. Would it be fair to say, Ken, that he might be one of the most underrated players ever to play the game? Yeah, I, I think so for sure. And obviously, we're a little biased. Right? I got to play with him a long time. I won two Stanley Cups, and I'm hoping he gets the call one day from the Hall of Fame because here's a guy. You talk about a guy that sacrificed some offense, and he's still what the, I think he had over a thousand points or right around there. But he he just was one of the best two way players in the game. I, I liken him somewhat, even though a little different style to a Marion Hosa where they just could play in every situation, didn't complain, just a guy that would do whatever it took to win, and he could kill a penalty. He could block a shot. He could make a big play when you need it, like he did in 2000 in double overtime, spin around backhand pass to Jason Arnott in front for us to win the second cup at the time. But, he probably, you know, certain guys that just kind of fly under the radar as great as they are. He doesn't fly under the radar in Jersey because he's one of five jerseys retired. And his teammates certainly know how special of a player he was for sure. But there's just certain guys. You look at Nick Backstrom in Washington. Certain guys, they just fly in the radar because there's other guys getting the accolades or just are a little more in the limelight. And Patrick didn't seem to be as much. But all he was was a winner and a guy that you just couldn't win without and would make the big play in the defensive zone, in the neutral zone, or in the offensive zone, whatever it took to win a game. And, and that's why we had success with the Devils and went to the Cup a lot of times and won three times was because a lot of our high-end players, like everybody says, well, they didn't have a lot of stars. They, yeah, obviously, Niedemeyer and Stevens and Broder are all in the Hall of Fame already. and So we did have star power, but you don't know that at the time. But it's what happens is these star guys, like the Elishes, they sacrifice some things to win. And, and sometimes people go, well, why would you sacrifice points to win? Because he's not cheating on the wrong side of the puck in a 3-2 game. And that allows you to come yeah. back and win that game, whether it's an important game during the season or in playoffs. That's what it means to sacrifice. It means that, yeah, you might get a few more points cheating, but you might lose a few more games in a big spot. And Patrick Elias never cheated, uh, cheated the Devils and cheated the game. He, he knew what it took to win. Yeah, no, I always, I always liked him. I, you know, it's, it's funny we, we brought him up because, I mean, I, I always talk about Steve Larmer, who I got to play with in Chicago. Hey. You know, I mean, 
1,200 games, like 1,300 points, probably one of the best two-way players uh, in the game back then. And every year I never even hear his name mentioned for the Hall of Fame. And I'm thinking, like, like one of these years he's got to get in. I mean, you know, uh, and like Elias, the same thing. And uh, there's several other guys, but those are the guys yeah. that I, I remember uh, playing against and so on. So I, I guess probably I know them a little bit better than uh, guys that played before me. So uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed that they're not in there yet. You, you know, that's a great, great comparison, Larmer, with Ali yeah. Ash. And I agree with because I played a long time time against Steve and just another guy that quiet, just goes about his business, mm -hmm. true pro, just like Ali Ash, and, and they fly under the radar. That's just the way it is. Some players do, and I threw out Nicholas Backstrom. He kinds of, kind of flies under the radar, but yeah. because of – uh, Ovechkin and, and he gets all the accolades and rightfully so but believe me management teammates they know the glue guys and, and certain guys that they may fly under the radar with fans or uh, outside of your your own market they don't with your organization and your team because we all knew how special and important they were so we got a big day coming up in the in not too distant future uh, the draft you guys are drafting second overall. Mm -hmm. Any we talk there about... We got some luck, Ricky. <laughs> well, is there any talk there about who they might take or anything? Uh, nothing being said? Yeah, you know, I just... Uh, my opinion, my opinion only. I mean, obviously, we're looking for skill and size up front. And there's a guy named Slavkovsky, as everybody knows, that fits mm -hmm. that bill, whether he's... Montreal takes him or not, who knows, but he, he's kind of ranked there. There's been talk the Devils want to make him want to push forward a little quicker. And if the right package came along and along with another player to, to get, to, especially with salary cap restraints where teams just can't keep really mm -hmm. good top six forwards or a defenseman. And if the package was right, that they would package the second pick to fast track it a little bit. That's a possibility, but, uh, uh, so that's just a few of the, what you hear, what I think, yeah. Would I like a big, strong forward that can make plays? Well, because they, they're pretty pretty skilled now, the Devils are. They've got a fast team, and especially down the middle with Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer and Jesper Brad on the wing with uh, speed. Uh, but they could use a little beef and a guy that can put the puck in the net as well that Jack Hughes and Nico Heischer can feed. And maybe Slavkoski, if he's there, that he could fit the bill. Uh, but that's the scouts' jobs, right, Rick, and the, the organization <laughs> to see which guys uh, they feel are going to help your team. But it, it's been really up in the air. There's been no, uh, you know, firm answer. And, and obviously they're not going to tell you what they're doing, as the Canadians aren't going to tell you who they're going to take number one overall. But there have been, you know, speculation that, you know, possibly Tom Fitzgerald, general manager and company, if the right deal came along, uh, to fast track a little to help the Hugheses and Heishers and Bratz and, and Dawson Mercer, who had a real good year along, that they could find the right couple of pieces, then maybe maybe they entertain the idea of packaging the second pick overall, which isn't done too often. No. no. Well, Ken, we are time is obviously of essence, and we're running out of it, and uh, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today, but let me leave this thought with you before we have closing comments, is that, now, Lou may have been a lot of things, and he turned that roster over. He was not shy to turn the roster over quite aggressively. So for you to last 20 years, that's got to be not just one check mark. That's going to be like two or three check marks in your favor. You could pull through that. So good well, for you on that one. 
Well, I'll tell you, it was a love-hate relationship at times, and usually the hate was because I wasn't behaving myself. But one thing I will say about Lou Lamorello is he's a loyal, loyal man, but you better help his team win. And that's why he put up with a lot more with me, and and it's public knowledge, and I was kind of a wild man, and once in a while I'll leave it at this, Lou, take me in the offices. Kenny, clean up your nightlife a little bit, he say. But he says, damn, you come to play at 7.30, and I don't know how you do it sometimes. Imagine if you didn't go out as much. So, <laughs> and that was early in my career. But you know what? I'm just grateful. Uh, he believed in me, and, and he believed I was part of something, and he knew how bad I wanted to win. I just wanted to win and be part of a team that uh, was going to accomplish something, and we did that. And, and Lou was that loyal, loyal guy, and I still have a great friendship with him today. But, yeah, he had to – he had to scold me a lot. And when I look back at it, and I didn't always think he was right, but 99% of the time he was. <laughs> well, hey, 20 years and three Stanley Cups. I would say yeah, no it worked in your favor. He was also a guy that most of us forwards didn't like to play against either. So I give him that too. Yeah, there's that too. Well, listen, so Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Uh, best of luck. I'll be looking for you when you get to Florida on NHL Network. And when you tune into that, we turn into Devil's Games, we're watching you there as well. I appreciate being on with you guys, Mike and Rick. And Rick, it was a, I say this sincerely, it was a, a real pleasure and special me, for me to spend the weekend with you. Always had a ton of respect for you when I was coming into the league and going, how am I going to stop Rick Five and, and the likes and, you know what? I and mean, obviously him being a Leaf, me growing up a Leaf fan. So, you know, I, I still, I'm 58 years old. And when I go to events like that and, and some older veteran guys are there or whatever that came before me, I'm, I'm like a little kid again. It's like I'm that that 10-year-old boy watching on TV going, God, I get to compete against Rick Vive again. Even though we're leaving a lot, we're, we're moving a lot, lot slower. At pace. Oh, yeah. But I, 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 I never take that for granted. And I, I just... Really appreciate the guys that uh, I get to have some fun with uh, on a weekend like we did there. So thanks a lot, yeah. guys. I've got a million awesome. stories, so we've got to do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Love to have you back. Love to have you All back. All right, Kenny, Thank boy. You for that. Thanks, Kenny. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right.